You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Glad to have you along for what promises to be an amazing ride. Today we are going to begin our series on one of the most well-known and most requested explorers, and that is Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton is often cited as one of the greatest explorers of the 20th century, and that is mostly because of the extraordinary deeds and efforts that he exhibited when his ship, Endurance, was trapped in the ice of the Antarctic in 1915. But I can promise you that Ernest Shackleton is a much more complex character than this now-towering figure of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. In fact, as an explorer, he has a lot to be desired, yet his deeds are almost unparalleled in the history of exploration. So buckle up for what promises to be a great run of episodes. Let's get started with a few notes. First, I want to point out that there is a ton of information available about Shackleton. Books, TV shows, movies, websites, there's just a million resources out there. With that in mind, know that what I'm going to say might not always jibe with what you know or have read about Shackleton. Again, with so much stuff about the guy available, we are bound to have some conflicting facts and opinions. I will post on our website, explorerspodcast.com, a list of primary resources that I have used for this series. That way, if you are wondering where I got all my info, you can just check it out for yourself. Second thing, because there is so much information about Shackleton and this era, know that this will be a long series. We get to really dig into the weeds of Shackleton's life, especially his endurance expedition. Third thing, I'm going to be posting on the website some maps and photos as well as links to Shackleton-related stuff. I've even got some exclusive images of Shackleton memorabilia sent to me by a Shackleton fan, an American named Joe Lavender. I'll post some of those on Facebook and Twitter as well. They are pretty cool. Thank you to Joe for sharing these, plus his advice on crafting this series. It is so great to have fans who love the show and these topics. Fourth, I want to remind everyone that if you are interested in supporting the show, you can donate at explorerspodcast.com. You can give a one-time donation via PayPal, or you can click over to our Patreon site and give on an ongoing basis. To all of you, thank you so very much. I especially want to give a shout-out to our upper-tier supporters, including Eileen, Dave, Adam, Chris, John Paul, Mitchell, Philip, Roger, and Maria. All of you make a huge difference by supporting the show and allowing my wife to let me do this as opposed to getting a real job. So thanks. So that is it for notes. Let's get going on the life of Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Henry Shackleton was born in Kilkea, County Kildare, Ireland, on February 15, 1874. 
His father was Henry Shackleton and his mother Henrietta Letitia Sophia Gavin. Ernest was the second of ten children, which included eight girls, plus Ernest and a younger brother. A bit about the Shackleton family. The Shackletons had come to Ireland in 1726, led by Abraham Shackleton. Abraham was an English Quaker who had come to Ballator, County Kildare. Ballator had been founded by Quakers in 1685 and was the first Quaker settlement in Ireland. In Ballator, which is about 40 miles west of Dublin, Abraham would start a school and the Shackleton name would become entwined with education and the Quaker faith for the next century. The Quakers of the region, including the Shackletons, would become part of an emerging merchant class, apart from the peasant Catholics as well as the ruling Anglo-Irish Protestants. People were wary of this odd sect that refused to swear oaths and dress strangely. They were mostly tolerated because they kept to themselves and didn't try to force their faith on others. The school at Ballator would remain under the aegis of the Shackleton family for generations and provide education for more than just Quakers. Amongst the alumni was the noted Irish statesman Edmund Burke. In 1831, 47-year-old Ebenezer Shackleton would purchase a mill a few miles from Ballator. Ebenezer had never been a fervent Quaker, and when he wed his second wife, he agreed to raise their children as members of the Church of England, thus splintering the Shackleton name from Quakerism. Ebenezer and his wife, Ellen, would have nine children, including Henry, who was born in 1847. Henry Shackleton was initially going to go into the army, but his poor health nixed that idea. Instead, he got a degree from Trinity College in Dublin, and in 1872, he married Henrietta Gavin from nearby Carlow. Now, Henry Shackleton's family, despite its Quaker influences, strongly identified with their English heritage. On the other hand, Henrietta Gavin was from a very old, but Protestant, Irish family, the Fitzmorrises, with roots going all the way back to the Norman invasion. This would make the family very much part of the Anglo-Irish ruling class. The couple's first child, Gertrude, was born straight away, and Ernest followed in 1874. He shared a birthday with Galileo. The Shackletons rented a 500-acre farm in Kildare, the land some of the best in Ireland. It was a lush, vibrant world, with woods and streams and fields for miles all around. And it would prove to be a wonderful place for an imaginative young boy to grow up. Henry and Henrietta would provide a nurturing and loving family atmosphere for their children. Henrietta was especially influential on Ernest and all the kids, as she herself was good-humored, inquisitive, and encouraging. Ernest was an energetic and imaginative boy. He was a keen reader and developed a love for adventure stories, such as those from Jules Verne, as well as poetry. The latter he picked up from his father. The Shackleton family would grow, but unrest was brewing in Ireland. The Catholic majority had been, for centuries, denied land ownership and other rights, but that was changing. There was an upheaval on the horizon surrounding land ownership, and Henry Shackleton found farming to not be that attractive of a future for his large family. Thus, in 1880, the family would make a radical change, abandoning their farm and moving to Dublin, where Henry would study to be a doctor. The life of a physician appeared to be much safer and more stable than that of a farmer. Henry would spend the next four years studying medicine, and upon graduating with his degree as a physician and surgeon, the family would make another rather dramatic decision. They would move from Dublin to London. Dr. Henry Shackleton would eventually set up a practice in Sydenham, a London suburb. He was known for his openness to alternative medicines and joined the British Homeopathic Society. He preached good sense and encouraged his children and his patients to eat well, stay active, and avoid alcohol. Thus, things went pretty well for the Shackletons. Henry's practice grew and thrived, and he was respected. The family, while not wealthy, did just fine, 
sitting snugly into the professional middle class of society. As for young Ernest, he would never lose his Irish roots or his accent. In fact, he frequently mentioned his love of his boyhood home and would proudly declare that he was Irish, even if most everyone assumed he was English. In some ways, Shackleton's Irish heritage would always keep him out of the upper crust of British society. The Irish brogue and Quaker background signaled to some that he just wasn't English enough. This Irishness was especially in play when Shackleton was a boy, as his classmates pounced on his accent and took to calling him Mickey, a name picked up by his family. The young Shackleton was popular at school. He was known for his positive, friendly attitude, jokes and witticisms, and a stream of never-ending stories that he would share with his classmates. This gift for Gab was something he would never lose. He enjoyed athletics and stood out most in boxing. However, as a student, he struggled. His teachers lamented his daydreaming and found him hard to motivate. Hugh Robert Mill, a friend of Shackleton's and his first biographer, said this of Shackleton's school years, quote, He was certainly a poor scholar, and in the class lists, his name was always far south of the equator and sometimes perilously near the pole, end quote. Shackleton's problem was boredom. If he found something dull, it was almost impossible for him to engage with the subject matter. Now, if he liked something, he'd do great, but if he didn't, forget about it. Due to his son's lagging grades, Henry Shackleton's hopes that his eldest son would follow in his footsteps and become a doctor faded away. Now, in 1887, Henry and Henrietta would welcome their tenth and final child. However, something dramatic would happen in the aftermath of the birth, and that was with regards to Henrietta. She would be struck by a mysterious illness. She had no energy and took to a sick room. She would never recover and spend the next 40 years in her sickbed, almost an invalid. This was a blow to the family in many ways. The children would miss out on Henrietta's loving and encouraging hand, and Henry now had an ill wife to care for and ten children. It was no doubt a daunting prospect, but he would do a pretty good job of it all. So with Ernest approaching adulthood and a career as a doctor not in the cards, it became imperative to figure out a future for the energetic teenager. Now, Ernest had always fancied the idea of going to sea. He loved stories about oceanic adventures and dreamed of going off to far-off exotic places. In fact, one time he and a group of friends went down to the docks and tried to enlist on a steamer. They were quickly shooed away by the chief steward. But for Ernest, the lure of the sea was strong, and thus Henry agreed to his son's request and went about looking for a way to get him a respectable position in the maritime industry. To become an officer in the Royal Navy was the most desired career path, but that just wasn't feasible. You either had to have a lot of money, outstanding connections, or the right bloodlines to get set on that path. Thus, the Shackletons turned to the Merchant Navy. The Merchant Navy, also called the Poor Man's Navy, was the vast merchant fleet that transported goods, mail, and people throughout the world under the British flag. It was not a military organization, but a civil one. The Merchant Navy offered opportunities for countless men, whose social standing simply meant that they could not get a commission in the regular British Navy. Henry Shackleton would secure a position for his son as a ship's boy, or cabin boy, on a merchant ship, the Houghton Tower, which would sail in April of 1890, bound for Chile in South America, a voyage of 20,000 miles, or 3,200 kilometers. And that was just to get there. They would then have to come back. The voyage would take a year, and Henry Shackleton hoped that the experience would get the whole I-want-to-be-a-sailor thing out of his son's system. A ship's boy was usually a teenage boy who would wait on the officers and passengers on a ship, often running errands for the captain. It was a good way to find out if a young man was suitable for the often difficult life of the Navy. The Halton Tower was a 16-ton clipper ship, which meant that it operated using sails instead of steam. 
It was an elegant vessel, able to accommodate 16 passengers, including women. But the ship was getting old as the age of sail was coming to a close. The Houghton Tower would depart at the end of April 1890, a year and 40,000 miles, or 64,000 kilometers, ahead of them. For 16-year-old Ernest Shackleton, life on a merchant ship would prove to be illuminating. He would quickly find out that he had lived a sheltered life. His family had never known poverty or abuse, and his parents were loving and supportive. A merchant vessel, however, was a place full of hard men. Drinking and swearing and gambling were commonplace. The food was bad and living conditions cramped. Discipline was often harsh, and fights and disputes were not uncommon. It was a shock to the teenager who had a habit of quoting poetry and regularly read the Bible. By the way, Shackleton's reading of the Bible was joked about initially, but the crew quickly came to like the young apprentice, and even the hardest men had to admire him for reading the good book. In fact, at times, Shackleton would read the Bible and other texts out loud to the other crewmen. So, for Shackleton's first voyage to Chile on the western coast of South America, it would take him around Cape Horn, famously one of the roughest places in the world. The waters between Cape Horn and Antarctica are called Drake's Passage, and it is notorious for massive waves and storms. No man sailed the passage without facing the concept of death. Shackleton would say this of sailing through these waters and climbing a tall mast in a storm, quote, You carry your life in hand when you go aloft, end quote. The year-long voyage to Chile and back would greatly affect Shackleton, and he grew immensely in this time. And to be honest, he did pretty well, considering the difficult circumstances. He was lauded by everyone for his eagerness to learn, his ability to connect with people of all walks of life, and his energy and confidence. He had shown a unique ability to adapt quickly and easily to people, personalities, and situations. Also, he came to learn how difficult life in the Merchant Navy was, and the very real dangers it entailed. And this included boredom. Like every sailor, he quickly found that boredom was a constant companion, and he understood that good captains and leaders worked to keep the boredom and complacency from taking root in a ship's crew. All of these elements took a lot of the romance out of sailing for Shackleton, but he came to appreciate the real-world education and experience he was getting. I should note that Shackleton was greatly aided by the captain of the Houghton Tower, a man named Partridge. Captain Partridge was a decent man who took a liking to Shackleton and tried to teach him how to be a good leader and sailor. In fact, at the conclusion of the voyage, Captain Partridge would give Shackleton a positive review, saying he was, quote, the most pig-headed, obstinate boy I have ever come across, but no real fault is found in him, and he can do his work right well, end quote. The Houghton Tower would reach Valparaiso, Chile, and then make a return voyage, getting back to England on April 22, 1891. The ship had been gone for just under a year and traveled 40,000 miles. Shackleton was wiser and experienced, but he had not lost his youthful exuberance that everyone found so appealing, and at times a bit annoying. One other change in Shackleton was that he was now a regular smoker. Despite all the hardships of maritime life, Shackleton was willing to go back to sea as his options were otherwise limited. Thus, he would be put into a full two-year apprenticeship, and nine weeks later, he would set sail on the Houghton Tower again, although this time with a new captain, Robert Robertson. Captain Robertson was an old-school sailor and believed in strict discipline. He was a stark contrast to Captain Partridge, who was more of a father figure to the crew. Robertson was not a good mentor for Shackleton, who reacted poorly to arbitrary rules and harsh punishments for minor infractions. Shackleton was the kind of person who thrived when he had an attentive leader who could show him the ropes, as opposed to just being thrown to the wolves. Luckily, the ship's second officer would take a liking to Shackleton and help guide him through these times. 
Shackleton would spend the next two years at sea, learning not just about becoming a naval officer, but just as importantly, maybe even more importantly, learning about men. Leading a ship meant leading men, including men of varied backgrounds. This included criminals and men who embraced all sorts of ideas and beliefs and goals. As on his first voyage, Shackleton would prove to be incredibly nimble when navigating the social structure of the crew. In his young life, Shackleton had experienced his share of social snobbery, but he himself didn't hold a man's background or accent or religion against him. In some ways, this was looked down on by his peers to associate so freely and easily with the working-class men. But Shackleton would take strength from it and garnered many supporters from all ranks of the crew. When Shackleton's apprenticeship was concluded, he had grown in many ways. As a person, he was easy to like and comfortable with most people. Rank meant little to him. And he radiated confidence. Also, he had a great smile. And I'm not saying that because of the photos we have. That's what people literally said about the guy. He had this magnetic smile, which made people want to like him. It was an amazing gift. Physically, Shackleton had grown and filled out as well. He was five foot ten and had a broad chest and shoulders. A lot of sources use the term ruggedly handsome to describe him. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So after wrapping up his apprenticeship, the 20-year-old Shackleton would pass his exams in October of 1894 and be eligible to serve as an officer in the Merchant Navy. The common path for men such as Shackleton was to take jobs on tramp steamers to earn experience and get their sea legs, and this is exactly what Shackleton did. He took a job with the Shire Line and would spend five years with them, sailing all over the world, but especially to the Far East, including China and Japan. Shackleton did well due to his easy manner with his fellow officers, crew, and passengers. He enjoyed his own company, often reading poetry, he loved Tennyson, in his cabin. He would even spend time writing his own verse. In 1897, while home on leave, Shackleton would, through one of his sisters, meet Emily Mary Dorman, the daughter of a prominent London lawyer. Emily was six years older than Shackleton, but he quickly became smitten by the independent and witty young woman. The two had several things in common, including both coming from large, educated, caring families. But the most important thing was they shared a love of poetry, with Emily introducing Ernest to Robert Browning, one of England's foremost Victorian poets, who would quickly become Shackleton's favorite. Shackleton loved Browning's never-say-die attitude and passionate language. It is said that he found the emotions and themes he wanted to express towards Emily and life in Browning's works. Now, there were some serious obstacles with regards to Shackleton's future with Emily. First, Emily Dorman was no simpleton, whose purpose in life was to just find a husband. She was educated and articulate and independent. She was determined not to be tied down by just any man. It is said that she had 16 marriage proposals before she turned 30. And thus, Shackleton would have to win Emily over, and she was wary of him due to his youth and due to the fact that his career would be long absences from home. The second obstacle was money. 
Emily's father, Charles Dorman, who was widowed, expected any prospective husband to be able to care for his daughter financially, and that was a worry. The Merchant Navy was a solid career, but it was not lucrative. And this issue of money, or lack of it, will dominate Shackleton for much of his life. He wanted this happy, tranquil world with a wife and children and all the fancy trimmings, but that required money, something Shackleton did not have and did not have an obvious path towards. Now, Shackleton and Emily's relationship would continue despite the financial challenges facing him. Perhaps everyone thought that Shackleton's long absences would doom the relationship in the long run. But Emily's father liked Shackleton and welcomed him to social functions and gatherings when he was in England. In 1898, Shackleton would earn his master's certificate, which allowed him to take command of any ship in the world's merchant service. It was signed by Winston Churchill, the colonial secretary. And at this same time, he would leave the world of tramp steamers and aging clipper ships behind when he would, with the help of a friend, secure a position as the fourth officer on a large cruise and mail ship, the Tantalan Castle. The Tantalan Castle was one of the elite cruise ships in the world, sailing between England and South Africa. This was the golden era of cruise liners, with luxury ships traveling throughout the world. It was a world that suited Ernest Shackleton. This was not dealing with rough and crude men of a transport ship. Instead, he was expected to spend time engaging with the wealthy passengers, and it was something he would prove to be good at. He quickly figured out who to dote on and who to flatter, which allowed him to make important friends and connections. Some of Shackleton's peers resented him for his easy manner and the effortless way which he wove himself into the world of the wealthy and influential. Many thought him a braggart and a fraud, but many more found him to be charming and likable. Shackleton would make several trips on the Tantalan Castle before moving on to a different liner, the Tintagel Castle. On one voyage to South Africa, in which the liner was bringing 1,200 soldiers bound for fighting in the Boer War, Shackleton would find himself integrating well with the troops and organizing entertainment for them. Shackleton admired the camaraderie and brotherhood the soldiers shared, and they liked and appreciated the respect Shackleton bestowed on them. On that voyage, Shackleton would even produce a souvenir book, calling it How 1,200 Soldiers Went to Table Bay. 2,000 copies would be made, and Shackleton found he had a talent for publishing. Also on this voyage, Shackleton would make a connection that would change his life, and that was with a young army lieutenant named Cedric Longstaff. Longstaff was the son of a wealthy industrialist, and that connection will be very important later on, so let's not forget about it. Shackleton would go on to sail on several other ships in 1900 and 1901, rising to the rank of third officer. His pay had gone from six pounds a week to eight pounds. It was respectable, but it was not going to make him rich. And thus, in 1900, Shackleton would start to look to life beyond the merchant fleet. He would have to if he was going to successfully woo Emily Dorman and her father. And frankly, Shackleton was bored. A decade in the merchant navy had left him itching for some excitement and glory. And then, in the summer of 1900, Shackleton would attend a lecture given by a man named Karsten Borsgravink. Borsgravink was a Norwegian explorer who had led the 1898 Southern Cross Expedition. It was the first expedition to overwinter on the Antarctic mainland. Shackleton soon became enthralled by the idea of becoming a polar explorer. He saw it as a way to fame and fortune and Emily Dorman. So for Ernest Shackleton, it was time to make a move. And when he saw that England was organizing an expedition to go to Antarctica, he was determined to be part of it. And with that, it is time to talk about Antarctica because it is going to be so important to the rest of this series. You can almost call it a character in our story, like Mount Everest was in our series on George Mallory and Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. That said, let us talk about Antarctica. 
The continent is 2,800 miles wide, or 4,500 kilometers, and surrounded by ice much of the time. In the winter months, it essentially doubles in size as ice forms around it. 98% of the continent is covered in ice. Antarctica is a land of extremes. It is the coldest, driest, and windiest continent, and has the highest average elevation, 8,000 feet, or 2,440 meters, of all the continents. The snow is 3 miles deep in some places. Winds reach 180 miles per hour, or 290 kilometers per hour. At the coldest spot on the continent, the average winter temperature is negative 63 Celsius, or negative 81 Fahrenheit. To say that it is bleak and desolate would be an understatement. Despite all of that, there is life in Antarctica, just not much of it. There is algae and bacteria and tundra, stuff like that. But most famously, there are penguins and seals, and the surrounding waters are teeming with fish and whales. The big thing about Antarctica is that it's not just this huge island of snow. It's mountainous, wild, and rugged, and unpredictable. And in the time of Shackleton, virtually nothing was known about it. With that in mind, let's do a little history on the exploration of the continent. Scientists and explorers had suspected the existence of a southern continent for more than a thousand years, but no one had ever actually reached it. The rounding of the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Horn in the 15th and 16th centuries proved that any lands further south were not connected to any known continent. In 1773, British explorer James Cook got pretty near to Antarctica. He crossed the Antarctic Circle, the first recorded person to do so, and got within about 150 miles of the mainland. On this voyage, Cook's expedition would map and claim South Georgia Island, which is located in the South Atlantic. It was a bleak, uninhabited island, about 875 miles, or 1,400 kilometers, from Antarctica. Cook did not view the island, which will play an important role in our story later, as having any value, saying of it, quote, A savage and horrible country, not a tree to be seen, nor a shrub even big enough to make a toothpick. He then added, I make bold that the world will derive no benefit from it, end quote. But Cook would mention something else that intrigued some entrepreneurs, whales and seals. They had been sighted in abundance in the area and further south. This meant money, and money and profit meant men would come to the region. By the end of the 1700s, ships would start to venture south, encountering the dangerous ice pack that surrounded Antarctica. Whaling and sealing would become big business, but the actual nature of Antarctica eluded the world until January of 1820. That is when a Russian expedition led by Fabian Gottlieb Thaddeus Bellingshausen, which is an awesome name, and Mikhail Lazarez first sighted land. And this was not just the ice pack, this was actual land. The revelation meant that explorers would now come to the continent, mostly to map the coastline. One of the most prominent endeavors was James Clark Ross's expedition of 1839, which discovered the Ross Ice Shelf, Ross Sea, Mount Erebus, Mount Terra, and Victoria Land. But enthusiasm for polar exploration would wane in the mid-1800s due to the financial and human costs. The Franklin Expedition, which was in the north, saw 120-plus men die after being trapped in the ice. That kind of sacrifice just wasn't worth it. And we should note the financial rewards weren't very evident. It was not like anyone was opening up new trade routes or there were rare spices to be had. This was Antarctica, which meant the focus was mostly on whaling and seal hunting. However, things would gradually change in the latter half of the 19th century as exploration took on a more heroic as well as scientific note. Explorers found the source of the Nile, crossed Africa and Australia, mapped the Northwest Passage, that sort of thing. And sooner or later, eyes would eventually turn toward Antarctica, the last great unknown continent on the planet. The place intrigued people, 
Yes, Antarctica offered scientific, military, and financial opportunities, but it also offered the chance for unabashed glory. And this, my friends, will take us up to the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. It is an era that is defined as from 1897 to 1922. In that time, there would be 17 major expeditions to the continent, focused on scientific and geographical research and exploration. And we are going to cover that entire time frame in this series. The heroic age of Antarctic exploration really is fascinating, because in many ways it's a throwback to old-school exploration. It's, mostly, men fighting in isolation against great odds, often with limited resources. There will be no planes or computers or any such modern technology, just men slogging their way through ice and snow and the most extreme elements in the world. For many lovers of exploration, it is the final gasp of the romantic explorer. Anyhow, the first expedition of the era would happen in 1897, and that was the Belgian Antarctic Expedition. It was led by Adrian de Gerlache. The expedition ship, Belgica, would get caught in the ice and would become the first to overwinter south of the Antarctic Circle. The expedition would suffer badly due to scurvy, but would figure out that eating raw meat would help the men survive. The ship would eventually break free of the ice and return to Europe. By the way, the first mate of the Belgica was a Norwegian named Roald Amundsen. Amundsen would go on to become probably the most accomplished polar explorer in history, and will play an important part in our story later on. The next major endeavor was the British Antarctic Expedition of 1898, often called the Southern Cross Expedition. It was not financed by the British government, but by a British magazine publisher. The expedition would be the first to overwinter on the continent. Also, they would use dogs and sledges for the first time, and be the first to ascend the Great Ice Barrier. The leader of the expedition was the aforementioned Karsten Borschgrevink. Borschgrevink's accomplishments were mixed, but the work that the expedition did would provide invaluable information for future Antarctic expeditions. A couple of things of note regarding these expeditions. First, the two expeditions starkly illustrated the dangers of Antarctic exploration. The physical dangers were obvious. Cold, starvation, scurvy, the ice, that sort of stuff. But there were the unseen dangers, the psychological ones. Spending a year or more, isolated and alone, and void of sunlight and warmth for months on end, was brutal on the human psyche. The isolation and boredom could drive men over the edge. Borschgrevink was criticized for his lack of leadership on the Southern Cross expedition, allowing his men to become disengaged and bored. These will all be issues for Shackleton and other explorers that we will talk about in this series. The second note I want to mention is that in England, there was a growing interest in Antarctic exploration, and in particular, the reaching of the South Pole. For many, this was about Britain maintaining itself as a world leader. Who are these little upstart countries to try and upstage them by claiming the greatest exploration feats of the age? The Belgians had already conducted one expedition, and the Germans and Swedes and French were talking about Antarctic exploration. And we can't forget about the Arctic. The Norwegians, Russians, Dutch, Americans, and many others were making excursions of their own, all the while trying to steal the mantle of world leader from Great Britain. By the way, the goal of some of these expeditions was to be the first to reach one of the poles. These were called the Three Poles. This included the North and South Poles, as well as the highest point on Earth, which was Mount Everest. These were the last great feathers for the exploration cap that anyone could obtain. And thus, in England, the government and public grew more and more interested in an expedition to the southern regions. This will take us to 1900. Great Britain had sat on the exploration sidelines for too long, and it was time to do something big. And that led to the creation of the British National Antarctic Expedition, 
more commonly known as the Discovery Expedition, after the name of the expedition's ship. The Discovery Expedition was the first official British exploration of the Antarctic since James Clark Ross had ventured to the frigid land some 60 years earlier. The expedition was a large endeavor, put together under the banner of the Royal Society and the Royal Geographical Society. The official goal was to carry out scientific research and geographical exploration of Antarctica, but make no mistake, taking a crack at reaching the South Pole was a major objective, even if no one said it out loud. And that takes us back to Ernest Shackleton and his attending of a lecture in the summer of 1900 given by Karsten Borsgravink, the leader of the Southern Cross Expedition. For Shackleton, this was the opportunity he had been looking for. Explorers like Henry Morton Stanley and Richard Francis Burton were celebrities. They wrote books and went on world speaking tours. This meant fame and fortune. Now, Shackleton certainly was interested in polar exploration, but it's not as if this was his lifelong dream, even if later he would say that exact thing. No, for Shackleton, this was simply an opportunity. It was a way for glory and cash, and a way to satisfy his lust for something new and adventurous in his life. He was, after all, 26 years old, and he feared his chance to make his mark on the world was passing him by. Thus, Shackleton would call on his old buddy, Cedric Longstaff, and set up a meeting with Longstaff's father, Llewellyn Longstaff. Llewellyn Longstaff was a very wealthy 59-year-old industrialist and a fellow in the Royal Geographical Society. He would meet Shackleton, who told him of his desire to join the upcoming Discovery Expedition. And Longstaff would be totally won over by the charming Irishman. The elder Longstaff saw a younger version of himself in Shackleton. He admired the energy and passion and confidence that Shackleton possessed and agreed to try and help him gain a position in the expedition's ranks. Now, a bit about the Discovery Expedition. The Endeavor was the brainchild of Sir Clements Markham, the president of the Royal Geographical Society. Markham was 70 years old and had served in the Navy and even participated in the search for the Franklin Expedition back in 1850. He desperately wanted England to reclaim the mantle of a leader in world exploration, and this meant exploring Antarctica and reaching the South Pole. Markham was a driven and relentless man, not to mention manipulative and vindictive. However, while he got the expedition formed, funding was hard to come by. The budget had been set at £100,000, but Parliament was not interested in spending that kind of money. By 1899, only £14,000 had been raised, 5000 of it from the Royal Geographical Society. It is here that our friend Llewellyn Longstaff stepped up. Longstaff would give £25,000 to the enterprise, and his donation would really kickstart things. Other donors soon joined in, including future kings Edward VII and George V. Once that happened, the government coughed up £45,000, and things were looking good. The expedition pushed forward, and Markham engineered the selection of Robert Falcon Scott, a 31-year-old Royal Navy lieutenant, as the expedition's leader. The pick was a bit of an odd one. Scott was somewhat obscure, but Markham had known him for years and had helped him with his career. Also, he was young and fit and intelligent, something Markham wanted in a leader. Another thing, and this is very important, Scott was totally Markham's man. The young naval officer would do anything that Markham wanted. Now, I do want to note that there was a brief struggle between Markham and the scientific elements of the proposed expedition. These people felt that the expedition's main goals should be scientific in nature. However, Markham would win that fight, and Scott would be the final arbiter of things. There would be no question that the primary focus of this expedition would be about exploration and discovery. The science stuff was great, but it was not going to interfere with the greater goal of discovery. I should also note that Markham wanted the expedition to be led by the British Navy, hence the selection of Scott as commander. 
With all of that in mind, in September 1900, Ernest Shackleton applied for a position with the Discovery Expedition with a nice recommendation from Llewellyn Longstaff. However, there were thousands of applications for jobs, and Shackleton was rejected. In some ways, this was a bias against the Merchant Navy. Anyhow, Longstaff would intercede personally with Markham, asking for leadership to reconsider Shackleton's application. And it's hard to reject a guy who just gave you a quarter of your funding. This led to the expedition's second-in-command, Albert Armitage, to review Shackleton's application. Armitage saw some good things in Shackleton. His years on the Houghton Tower, his first ship, would be valuable as it was a square rigger like Discovery. And there were good testimonials from Shackleton's shipmates. They praised his intelligence, enthusiasm, and overall character. It probably didn't hurt that Armitage was a merchant navy man himself, and he understood the skill set a man like Shackleton would bring to the Enterprise. And thus, on February 17, 1901, Shackleton would get appointed as third officer of the National Antarctic Expedition. He was given a commission in the Royal Navy Reserves to give the expedition more of a military flavor. He would get 250 pounds a year, and the expedition was expected to last three years. As Shackleton was at sea at the time, no formal interview or medical exam was conducted. Shackleton's role was to take charge of the provisions, stow the hold, build up the ship's library, and organize entertainment for the men once at sea. Shackleton was thrilled at this new and exciting opportunity, and he threw himself into the job once he signed on. His peers quickly found that he was an enthusiastic officer, full of energy and ideas, even if not all of them were very practical. Sir Markham would call Shackleton a, quote, marble of intelligent energy, end quote. So the year was 1901, and Ernest Shackleton was 27 years old. He had spent a decade and a half on transports and steamers and ocean liners, but now he was forging a new path for himself, and a remarkable path it will be. With that, I will wrap things up for today. Next time, we will take Shackleton and Robert Falcon Scott to the Antarctic for the first great attempt to reach the South Pole. It is a journey that will bring Shackleton renown, not to mention a few enemies. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the first episode in our series on Ernest Shackleton. Please take care. I wish you good health, and I hope to see you next time. Thanks again. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.